Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. On April 3rd, rumors started circulating about the arrest of Jordan's former crown prince, Hamza bin Hussein, and some senior officials. A brief statement by the army denied the arrest, but confirmed the prince was asked to stop what the statement called activities that were employed to target Jordan's security and stability. In a leaked video, Prince Hamza said that he was placed under house arrest and denied involvement with foreign powers and aligned himself with the Jordanian street, which is growingly frustrated by what he called the corruption and incompetence of the system. So how can we understand this turmoil inside the royal family and is there truly a rift at the highest ranks of the Jordanian regime? How did this event link to the public discontent around the country's suffering economy? And how will it impact civil liberties and the social and political movements already bearing the brunt of restrictive anti-terrorism and cybersecurity laws? Vominaz Mira Nabulsi spoke with Dr. Ziad Aburish the director of the MA program in Human Rights and the Arts at Bard College. His research focuses on popular mobilizations and state formation in Jordan and Lebanon. He's also a co-editor of Jadalia Izin. She started by asking him about the significance of the royal rift in Jordan. I'd like to provide two caveats before discussing the significance is the first, we know much less than we don't know. And this is a function of the fact that most of the information available to us has come from representatives of the monarchy and the regime in Jordan. And on the other hand, that there is currently a gag order in effect in Jordan that is preventing uh, not just local media from properly reporting on this event, but striking fear in the hearts of many that might consider trying to speak about this openly to try and better understand what is happening. The second caveat is that I think what we witnessed earlier this month was multiple dynamics that overlapped or intersected and that the regime presented in the form of a conspiracy to destabilize the country. So on the one hand, we have the placing under house arrest of the former crown prince, Prince Hamza, who is the son of the late King Hussein. And he has increasingly lent his tacit and sometimes explicit support for different grievances that have been aired in Jordan over the last several years and different protest movements that have mobilized against the status quo in Jordan, some of them directly criticizing King Abdullah and his reign and others criticizing the current policies in place in Jordan. On the other hand, and here's where we turn to the 16 other people arrested that you mentioned, these include Basim Awadallah, who is a former chief of the royal court, uh, former envoy of uh, King Abdullah uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia, 
and a chief architect of many of the economic restructuring programs and policies that were put in place. Uh, Awadallah and a number of others that were arrested uh, uh, earlier this month uh, in many ways embody the personalities that many of the grievances and mobilizations in Jordan had targeted as being responsible for the current uh, economic malaise and the real uh, rolling back of social safety nets in Jordan for the average person. Um, and so in some ways, uh, we could see their arrest as uh, a sacrificial offering, if you will, uh, by the regime and by the monarchy to say, look, these are people that you have previously uh, singled out as corrupt, as responsible for the current economic problems in the country, um, and we are arresting them and, and prosecuting them, uh, even if they are not being arrested and prosecuted for corruption, but for the conspiracy to destabilize. The third dynamic, and I've alluded to it in talking about Prince Hamza and the others, Basim Awadallah and the others that were arrested, is that there is a growing protest movement in Jordan that in some ways is a reverberation of the Arab uprisings and their manifestations in Jordan, but in other ways is part of a much longer tradition of opposition politics and mobilization in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So the events earlier this month are really an intersection and overlapping of these three issues and dynamics. And I think it's really important to understand that the idea that all of these three dynamics are part of a conspiracy to destabilize the country is a very easy way for the regime to deal a blow to a number of critics and potential threats at the same time that it is able to appeal to sentiments that might be sympathetic to protecting the kingdom against foreign intrigue. While the monarchy and the government in Jordan has not specifically named anyone outside of the kingdom in terms of governments that are responsible supposedly for this uh, conspiracy or coup plot or however it has defined it and how the government has defined it has actually changed over time. Let's mm -hmm. remember that it started as a coup plot and moved to a conspiracy to destabilize the country. In all of these cases, no one is specifically mentioned as an outside government or outside agent, but the assumption and the tacit messaging is that Saudi Arabia and or the United Arab Emirates, and perhaps in collaboration or coordination with Israel, are somehow responsible, and that this is part of a broader problematic approach of these governments and regimes to the region, most exemplified in Jordan's unwillingness to participate in Donald Trump's deal of the century with regards to the Palestinian question. So you can see how this is really bringing many of these issues together and trying to neatly package it. I will say this, is it possible that there was some kind of external planning, plotting, or conspiracy to somehow pressure the regime in Jordan, or even perhaps destabilize or overthrow it? Sure, that is a possibility, and that is always a possibility in Jordan and in the Middle East, given the track record of the United States, given the track record of Israel, and given the track record of regional powers such as Saudi Arabia. But just because that is a possibility does not mean that that is probably what happened. And in the absence of some type of more concrete evidence, I think this is a, a situation in which the regime had tried to simultaneously deal with multiple pressures through this 
conspiracy narrative. And yeah, and we will unpack a lot of these different things that you are mentioning, but I wanted to go back to just Prince Hamza and some of the things that he said. So I wanted to just kind of pick your brains on the idea of just somebody from within the royal family uh, criticizing not just the government, but essentially the regime as a whole. To me, as just someone from the region who consumes news, it just felt really unprecedented to see something like this play out. What are some of your thoughts? We don't yet understand fully how this message was developed and why it was released. Was this, for example, a planned message in the sense that these are claims that Prince Hamza believed in prior to his house arrest? Or was this a rapidly formulated message to ensure his safety or another kind of stopgap measure in the face of an impending or existing house arrest. So we're not clear on that, right? These statements were not made except under duress. So I think that's important to keep in mind. The other issue is that in some ways this is unprecedented in that it's not clear that members of the Hashemite family and the ruling family, especially this close, have been as critical of the status quo publicly. Although we should make clear that one of the tried and true tactics of King Abdullah II has been to come out in public and criticize the status quo as if he had nothing to do with its creation and to blame the the government and the parliament and politicians, and that if it wasn't for their obstinance and obstruction, that he would have seen the country into better days or better times. So I, I think we should be clear on that. However, this unprecedented development needs to be viewed in light of a region and a country that is undergoing various pressures and various stresses, and a type of popular mobilization that in some ways has continuities with past times and historical periods, but it is also something new. And I think different people are attempting to better understand their positionality vis-a-vis the opportunities these mobilizations might create for them. But I just want to be very clear on a, a few things, just so we don't fall into the good guy, bad guy. If there is a struggle between Prince Hamza and King Abdullah, whether for the throne or for the hearts and minds of the Jordanian people or however people want to frame it, I think we should be clear about a few things. First of all, Jordan has been an authoritarian state since its founding in 1921, when it was an emirate and then it became a monarchy after World War II. It was an authoritarian state under King Hussein, as it was under King Abdullah before him, and as it is under King Abdullah II today. The will and good of the people was always secondary to the maintenance of Hashemite rule in the Kingdom of Jordan, as has been the case of the maintenance of rule of any regime around the Middle East and North Africa and elsewhere. And I think it's really important to just recognize that fact. That does not mean that in the current moment, the types of social safety nets and the type of economic destabilization that the average person in Jordan, whether Jordanian or non-Jordanian, is experiencing isn't quite acute and might create for a different mixture of political calculations than was previously the case. I think across the political elite in Jordan, we do not see real ideas for a different type of economic development, one that is responsive to the needs of the majority of the Jordanian population or the population in Jordan. And so in some senses, 
this is an intra-elite struggle that is maybe making use of legitimate grievances, but that in reality does not represent any real promise for change in the everyday lives of people in Jordan. And I think that's, that's very important to point out. I think we should also note that this struggle between uh, Prince Hamza and King Abdullah, if it is a struggle, is in many ways a continuation of the transition of power from King Hussein to King Abdullah, because if our listeners might be aware or not, it was Prince Hassan, King Hussein's brother, who was crowned prince with the idea that his son was too young, King Hussein's son, Prince Hamza, was too young to be crowned prince. And that while there were last minute struggles and uh, King Hussein decided to make his son Abdullah II crowned prince and then king after him instead of his brother on his deathbed, literally, there is some indication that that was supposed to be done in agreement for a potential carryover term in which Hamza would ascend the throne And then shortly thereafter, King Abdullah removed Prince Hamza from being crown prince and made his own son crown prince. So there is some history to these dynamics. But again, we don't really know if Hamza was making a real power grab to overthrow the monarchy. I find that highly unlikely. Uh, You would need the collaboration and coordination of a number of high-level officials, including the military, or segments of the military to participate. And I think we should remember that at least for now, there have been no reported firings or arrests for any of the security branches or military branches in the kingdom, which makes it hard to believe that there was actually some kind of conspiracy or plot that was supposedly going to be carried out or people believed would work without any of the top members of the military or security establishment participating. Prince Hamza, he's known to have very close ties to some of the major Jordanian tribes. Do you think that plays out in his favor? I kind of have a hard time believing that King Abdullah would want to anger some of those major Jordanian families, especially that many of them are pretty entrenched in the government and the security apparatus. What can you tell us about Hamza's role prior to these events and his relationship to the tribes? And how do you think that may also play out moving forward? I think that we should keep in mind that if there are major families of significance in the Jordanian political economy that for whatever reason claim to or allegedly support Hamza more than they do some other member of the royal family, it would be because they see themselves on the losing side of the current balance of power and equation that is the political economy of Jordan. What many analysts point to is that these tribes or these major families had previously been quite loyal to King Hussein. And that is in the aftermath of King Hussein's passing that their allegiance did not properly transfer to King Abdullah and has subsequently transferred to a number of possible other people now allegedly coalescing around Prince Hamza. All this tells me is that there are critics of the status quo in Jordan that are not willing to challenge the idea of the monarchy, but are perhaps willing to either bet on a different monarch or put pressure on the current monarch by showing displeasure 
and spending time or showing favor to a different member of the family, particularly the former crown prince, particularly another son of King Hussein. So for me, I see this as, again, intra-elite politics. Prince Hamza, like all princes and princesses in Jordan, spends most of his time currying favor with different segments of the population through various social development programs, through various in-person meetings, through various favors. So the fact that he has some type of support or following is not surprising. One, given who he is and who his father was, but two, given the criticisms that have been projected at King Abdullah II. Now, does that necessarily translate to the fact that all of these families are willing to back Hamza in a struggle over the throne, I'm not sure I'm ready to make that claim. Does that mean that they're using their public support or concern for Hamza to signal their disagreement, discomfort, or criticism of the current status quo and the policies that have been carried out under the reign of King Abdullah II? I am comfortable saying that. And only time will tell, but for now, I don't think there's any reason to assume that campaigns, this includes various meetings and networkings with major families around Jordan. This also includes restructuring the military and the security services and channeling foreign aid to the security services and the military in new ways to privilege those units that he has either created or can count on for his loyalty. And as we've seen in any number of previous cases in the Middle East and North Africa or around the world, it takes a tremendous amount of structural change plus contingency to actually threaten an incumbent ruler. And I don't think we're there. That does not mean that King Abdullah II is not facing challenges. But are these challenges existential to his reign? I'm not sure about that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the first reactions. Internally in Jordan, on the evening of Saturday, April 3rd, there was a lot of confusion by Jordanians. Uh, no local outlets covering what's going on. And at this point, a Washington Post article comes out confirming the House arrest which was at the time the most credible source available for what's going on. And then at the same time, internationally, we see a wave of statements in support for King Abdullah from neighboring Arab countries. Talk more about what you followed in terms of local reactions, especially for Jordanians, whether inside of Jordan or abroad. Well, I think the term great amount of confusion is a great description of how to represent what was going on in the country amongst people in the kingdom and outside of the kingdom. And I should, for transparency reasons, make clear that I was not in Jordan at the time and followed it from outside. But one of the reasons, let's be clear, it has been so hard, and I want to stress this again, to talk to people in Jordan about what's happening publicly and openly is because there is a gag order with the threat of very serious prosecution at the military court level for individuals that violate that gag order. So we should be clear on that. Let me say the following. Various rumors circulated about a coup plot or vengeance being taken out on Hamza for stepping out of line. There were different narratives and multiple narratives circulating at once. It's important to recognize, however, that whatever circulation of rumors were going on, the government and regime itself felt the need to come out and make a public statement. And one regime representative actually came out and said 
that Prince Hamza is not under house arrest. And it was under those conditions that the BBC leaked video emerged to contradict the initial statements. So, for example, one of the things we're unable to find out more about in Jordan, and that unfortunately I have not seen a single foreign correspondent ask this question in a press conference, although let's be clear, the number of press conferences given have been very limited, is how is it that a representative of the government came out and officially said Prince Hamza is not under house arrest? And then later on, a video leaked where Prince Hamza was saying, hey, I'm under house arrest. That kind of investigative or adversarial journalism has not happened. Now, I can understand so why... So you're referring to the first statement that came, I think, from the army, actually. Yes, in the early mm-hmm. hours. Now, it might be that he wasn't under house arrest at that time and then was under house arrest and then the video leaked. We don't know. But the government hasn't even been forced to account for these rumored discrepancies because we've just been, again, following the narrative that the government has been given. And by the government, I mean either the civilian government, the military, or the royal court, the Jordanian political system as a whole. But the fact that the military had to come out and make such a statement, I think is indicative of how seriously rumors had started to circulate and the concern that the military or the royal court or the government had about these rumors circulating without an official response. Because there are always rumors that circulate, right? Why was this? And officially said, Prince Hamza is not under house arrest. And then later on, a video leaked where Prince Hamza was saying, hey, I'm under house arrest. That kind of investigative or adversarial journalism has not happened. Now, I can understand so why... So you're referring to the first statement that came, I think, from the army, actually. Yes. In the-, the country and what's going to happen to them, to people who are extremely critical of the regime, who even question the legitimacy of the regime as a whole, the royal family. I remember particularly one person said something about how this whole Hashemat family doesn't even belong in Jordan. And then to other rooms that were more kind of just really seeking information and commenting on social media posts they were seeing, commenting on the Washington Post article. I've even heard that Washington Post actually does not have a reporter in Jordan, but it was the first credible source to come out with information. So a lot of speculation, but also, interestingly, a lot of criticism as well. More critical take on what's going on. A lot of frustration as well, specifically by journalists, which we're going to talk about later. That was pretty interesting to observe just the range of thoughts on what's going on. And then as well that we saw, I think the day after even hashtags over Twitter asking, where is Prince Hamza? So really a variety of opinions. And I think yesterday I was looking at this prominent Jordanian journalist was saying how 12, 13 days after, we still don't know, was this a coup attempt? Was this a sedition? Was this a conspiracy? So clearly, people still really wanting to know what is it exactly that happened and a lot of um, misleading information and perhaps maybe no clear indication of what really is going on internally. Absolutely, Mira. If I could just stress a few uh, dynamics within the kind of description you just gave, with, which I thought was really mm-hmm. helpful and useful to our listeners. The first is, 
you're right. We still don't know what happened. We don't know what happened in terms of some of the contradictory statements and messages that came out from the regime itself, either the royal court, uh, the military or the civilian government. We don't know. There has been no accounting for the changing description of what is happening. Was it a coup plot? Was it an attempted coup, which are two different things, right? An attempted coup is when it's executed and fails. A plot is it wasn't executed yet, but it was being hatched. Is it a conspiracy to destabilize the country? And let's be executed in Jordan for allegedly destabilizing the country for merely posting some criticism of the country or of one of their allies on social media. So the charge of conspiracy to destabilize the country is actually a very broad one that can encompass anything from actually planting a bomb to merely saying that you fundamentally disagree with a core policy of the royal family. So we don't know. Relatedly, we don't know what the fate of Prince Hamza is. Ever since the letter to the Jordanian people from King Abdullah II and the statements that were relayed or made by Prince Hamza, and that allegedly Prince Hamza is now in the home of King Abdullah II, we do not have any idea of, of what has been happening. We have not heard much from Prince Hamza. We have not heard anything from King Hussein's widow, Queen Noor, since then. And there's a gag order in place, and we'll talk about journalists in a little bit. But I do want to just stress two things here. One is we should disaggregate what individual opinions shared on social media might be, and they do run the gamut, right? Are there individuals in Jordan who are against the monarchy as a whole? Absolutely. Are there individuals who are not against the monarchy, but against Abdullah II being on the throne, or at least pro someone else from the Hashemite family being on the throne? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Are there people who are not concerned with the question of the monarchy and the royal family, but concerned with everyone below the royal family? And that's who they target their criticism and preferences on? Absolutely. Are there reformists? meaning they're not interested in overthrowing or fundamentally overturning either the political or socioeconomic system, but are seeking to redress certain problems that they've identified? Yes. And are there supporters of the royal family, of King Abdullah II, and of the status quo as it is today? Absolutely. So I think we should just acknowledge that. Now, when we translate that array of potential opinions that do exist on an individual level to meaningful political blocks, meaning collective actors that are capable of competing and realizing for their visions, the range of possibilities actually gets a lot smaller. And that is, on the one hand, a result of the direct policies of the regime, on the one hand, threatening or otherwise repressing potential criticisms and threats to itself, and on the other hand, rewarding stalwart allies and, and supporters of the regime. I think that's very important to keep in mind as we think about what's happening on the ground. And I do want to stress, despite the claim of Jordan being a stable country, there is a rich and diverse history 
of popular politics and mobilizations in Jordan. The idea that the Jordanian population or the population in Jordan from the beginning was a passive, docile supporter of the monarchy no matter what is simply in contradiction to the amazing historical and other research that has been done on Jordan from the time of the establishment of the Emirate onwards. There is no shortage of calls for transparency, accountability, and social justice in Jordan. Not now and not previously. And if there is any stability in Jordan, we usually mean stability in the sense that the status quo interests have not been fundamentally threatened and external allies of the existing regime in Jordan have never felt that their interests in the countries have been threatened. Let's be very clear what we mean by stability. And the final point I want to say, Mira, and you point to this really well when you're first starting out, let's remember that people are living under really dire circumstances in Jordan. Even if you remove the problem of the pandemic and its socioeconomic reverberations, the average person in Jordan is struggling greatly in socioeconomic terms, separate from or related to, depending on your analysis, from their being deprived of any meaningful political participation in policymaking in Jordan. For a lot of people, whatever their preferences are, that large amount of confusion that they experienced only added anxiety to the uncertainty of their fate. And while many people want to make this about calculating which prince or which king or which major family did what and when, for the average person, right, their primary calculation is, is this going to make my life harder or easier? And that's not an ideological question for them. That is an everyday reality question for them. And unfortunately, as I said earlier, Right now, the major options on the table for Jordan, and even some of the wishful options on the table for Jordan, don't really promise anything different for those average people. I should mention, because I did reference Clubhouse, that Clubhouse is officially actually banned in Jordan. I believe end of March of this year, they officially banned it. So definitely even people joining and able to have these conversations online do so while, you know, risking potential consequences, uh, arrests and whatnot. And they do so through VPNs. And not only that, Mira, but mm -hmm. also that there is no shortage of the prosecution of individuals who are not politically affiliated. I'm not even going to count the politically affiliated individuals that mm -hmm. have been prosecuted. I'm talking about individuals that have simply expressed their views, whether publicly in cafes, in classrooms, in offices, or on social media networks, who have been prosecuted for speech critical of the monarchy's policies. Let's be clear. They don't have to be critical of the monarchy itself. They can be critical of the monarchy's policies and they have been prosecuted. Critical of the allies of Jordan, right? Whether there are people who have been interrogated and prosecuted simply for posting criticisms of the foreign policy of the United Arab Emirates or Saudi Arabia. And like you said, clubhouse is banned in Jordan. So there is no shortage of the tightening of spaces for public exchange, not to mention their monitoring and surveillance and the prosecution of those that overstep what is determined to be the appropriate bound. That is Dr. Ziad Aburish speaking with Nira Nabolsi, 
about the significance of the recent turmoil inside the royal family in Jordan. We'll hear more after a break from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Basim Awadullah. This is perhaps one of the most prominent figures of the 16 people arrested, although I don't believe there was ever a list, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe I saw a list of who those 16 people were exactly. However, we know a few of the names, and the most prominent name uh, of those 16 arrests is that of Basim Awadullah. He was the head of the royal court, as you had mentioned earlier, and then was the planning and then finance minister in Jordan, and most recently somehow ended up in Saudi Arabia and became the advisor of Mohammed bin Salman MBS. What did you make of this specific arrest? Well, like I alluded to earlier, Basim Awadullah has been a chief architect and protagonist in the type of economic and social restructuring that we have seen in Jordan over the last 30 years. He hasn't been involved in it in the past 30 years, but he is one of the key figures when his turn came about to be able to play a role in this restructuring. Therefore, many critics of the status quo in Jordan, of the path of economic development, of the ways in which corruption and economic reform have been intertwined in Jordan, and how the average person has increasingly seen their lives become more difficult in terms of making ends meet and realizing their aspirations, he has been one of the people targeted as responsible for those transformations. So it is not uncommon for the regime in Jordan or other authoritarian regimes in the Middle East and North Africa or elsewhere at some point to turn on and arrest what we could call regime insiders. Mm -hmm. This usually happens either because they are determined to be a necessary sacrifice to decrease public pressure, or it's because for whatever reason, those individuals have fallen out of favor. And in addition to falling out of favor, arresting them and charging them, usually with corruption, is an easy way to offer some kind of release valve in terms of the criticisms the regime is being faced in. So we don't know which one of these cases it is. Did Basim Awadullah have a falling out with King Abdullah II and the royal court? We just don't have that information. Was that falling out because he was aligning himself more with the policies of Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and somehow critical or pressuring of King Abdullah II of falling in line with the deal of the century of the Trump administration, which is also orchestrated by Mohammed bin Salman and the United Arab Emirates. We just don't know. But I will say this, it is not unprecedented for a regime insider to all of a sudden be on the outside and be prosecuted 
by the regime in Jordan. It might be unprecedented that they are being prosecuted for conspiracy to destabilize the country, but I guess that's better than being prosecuted for corruption, which was known from day one by the very people that are now claiming that they're prosecuting someone for corruption. And you're absolutely right. We do not have a total list of the number arrested. I've heard 19. I've heard 14 to 16. The only names that have been shared and confirmed are Basim Awadallah and Sharif Hassan bin Zaid. We do not have any other information. The fact that, again, the foreign journalists that have had opportunities to ask these questions at what limited press conferences have been had, and they haven't asked them, is a concern for me. The fact that the regime, either the military, the royal court, or the civilian government, has not felt the need to actually list who was arrested and who they were, leaving all of this to rumor and gossip at the same time that there's a gag order to find anything out. For example, where are these individuals being held? Do they have access to legal representation? Have their families been able to see them? Have charges been brought against them? Is there a trial date set? We have none of this information available to us. Awadullah is uh, particularly interesting as well because of the links to Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. In fact, a few days ago, the Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Farhan visited Jordan. And I believe the Washington Post reported that the reason behind their visit was because they wanted Awadullah back to Saudi Arabia with them on the same plain, essentially. And that did not happen. Although Saudi uh, sources came out and denied that that was the reason behind the visit to Jordan. Nevertheless, interesting timing for the visit to Jordan. I think the official line was that uh, Saudi Arabia just wanted to express their support for King Abdullah at this time. And that was the official reason behind the visit. But really, his ties as well to the Saudi and Emirati regime were themselves as well, the reason why so many speculations, whether there could be a link for Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in what unraveled in Jordan. You point out an important thing. So another element that we have no information about is whether the delegation that very quickly arrived in Jordan from Saudi Arabia, under the cover of expressing support for King Abdullah II, whether it did actually demand the release of Basim Awadallah before any judicial procedures happened. And some reports say that they demanded that he leave on the flight with the delegation back to Saudi Arabia. And the Saudi government has denied that. And of course, neither the political system in Saudi Arabia or the political system in Jordan get any awards for transparency and accountability mm-hmm. in terms of what happened under these circumstances. But again, It is not uncommon for people in some internal regime circles to have very close ties and relationships with other governments or regime circles. Basim Awadallah is one example, but we can think of others in the past in Jordan and elsewhere in other countries. Again, it's not clear what transpired. If the Saudis demanded that Basim Awadallah be released... Did they do so because he was their man in Jordan and he got caught doing something they asked him to do? Or is it that he is their man in Jordan and they know that he is being sacrificed and they want to take him back to Saudi Arabia? Or is there a third option? Again, the reading into, even if confirmed, it's not clear what it means. The fact that the Saudi government 
immediately asked for his return prior to any judicial prosecutions indicates to me that there was no Saudi-sponsored attempt because the demand then could have been that we want him released immediately, whether he's going to see judicial procedures or not, we want him to come back with us. But the demand as reported, and again, we only have the insights of the Washington Post and CNN, is that the demand was that he be released before judicial procedures begin, not before he be questioned by the Jordanian regime, which probably happened very quickly if this was Mm -hmm. a real conspiracy to destabilize the country. So there's so much we don't know. And even if some of the things we don't know turn out to be true, they don't necessarily mean the regime's narrative is correct. It could be that Mohammed bin Salman personally likes Bassem Awadallah and doesn't want him arrested. Or it could be that Bassem Awadallah has very important sensitive information that the Saudi regime doesn't want revealed. We're not going to know the answer to that. I wanted us now to move to talk about this very important conversation that came out of these events, which is the role of Jordanian media and the freedom of press overall. Three days after the beginning of the crisis, if we may call it so, the Jordanian public prosecutor banned reporting on the alleged coup, both in the media and on social media. Can you talk about the state of the Jordanian press and how much do these recent events define maybe what lies ahead for the freedom of press and access to information for the average Jordanian? Well, I would say that in some ways, the Jordanian media landscape has undergone a process of liberalization, and I would use that in quotation marks, since the 1990s, akin to what has happened across other parts of the Middle East and North Africa. So whereas in the past, the only media outlets in terms of radio, television, and print media were state-owned enterprises, we now have state-owned enterprises, and a plethora of radio stations, print publications, and television stations that are variously Jordanian-owned and concern themselves with Jordanian affairs. That being said, I would uh, note two caveats to that fact. First, most Jordanian media outlets have some kind of close connection to status quo individuals in Jordan and have largely towed the line of the regime in this crisis and in previous moments of crisis. While we've seen some debate happen in the majority of Jordanian media, that debate has been always within the acceptable bounds of debate set by the royal court, the military, and the civilian government. It has rarely been a real opposition media in any meaningful way, and certainly not adversarial in its reporting. That's one aspect I want to say. There are a few exceptions to this fact, and I really don't know enough about the current situation on the ground in Jordan and how what I'm saying is going to be read by the regime or by individuals who might take punitive action. So I don't want to name any outlets in Jordan, but I have named them in the past in other interviews. They're far and few between. They can be counted on one hand. They have been incredibly brave. They have really elevated the standard of independent journalism, of accountability, of transparency, and of real public and open debate about political, economic, social, and other questions and issues in Jordan. The fact that they have been silent so far 
should be viewed as nothing but the fact that they are under a great amount of pressure and intimidation as a result of the gag order, but also as a result of the kind of intimidation and various pressures they have been subjected to since 2011 onwards. So I think that's important to note about the media landscape. And I want to say that there are really complex ways in which the Jordanian regime is able to maintain control of the media landscape. So, for example, to actually operate as the media outlet in Jordan, you have to meet certain requirements, some of them having to do with your editor needs to be a member of the press syndicate. Mm -hmm. But then to be able to be a member of the press syndicate, you have to have worked a certain number of years and have this kind of degree or that kind of degree and be approved and not be approved and these kind of things. So there's a whole bureaucratic edifice that has actually helped the regime maintain its control over the media landscape in Jordan. And again, I think there are a few initiatives, there are a handful, if not less, that have been very brave. They have inspired me. They have taught me so much about how things work in Jordan and about what real courage in the face of media censorship and the violation of freedom of speech looks like in Jordan. And I look forward to the day when they will be able to properly account for what has transpired in Jordan, because that is, I think, when we will really learn what is going on in Jordan, because they have been at the forefront of not just teaching me and other academics and scholars, but I think they have done a far better job than most foreign press associations and outlets that have been working in Jordan. I definitely did notice a lot of frustration among journalists from what I was able to just follow online uh, and even getting access or getting uh, maybe similar access to government sources comparable to what foreign press gets access to. For example, the leading alternative news website, Heber, responded to the order by the public prosecutor, responded with a story right after the ban asking the fundamental question, is journalism still possible even in Jordan? How much does that even demonstrate the type of relationship that we see between the state and the royal family and the local media? I think the question posed by Heber goes to the heart of the matter and really demonstrates a keen understanding of the landscape that exists in the country. We usually, in the United States and elsewhere, refer to Jordan as a stable country. We refer to Jordan as a moderate country. But I would say that Jordan is up there with any other authoritarian state in the Middle East and North Africa in terms of real, transparent and accountable journalism and getting in the way of making that possible. You ask a good question in the sense of meaning, how does Jordanian media respond to this moment? Once the dust settles, and I don't know when it'll settle or how it'll settle, but do outlets just go back to how they were talking about things prior to this moment? Or does this represent a foundational moment, a reckoning, if you will, of how limited it actually is in terms of possibilities of doing journalism in Jordan? And, and I would keep an eye out on Heber, their leadership, their journalists, their writers. They are true professionals with a wonderful set of ethics with regards to their profession and practice.
And this conversation takes me to the next question about the state of political and social movements generally in Jordan. The article that I referenced earlier from Hebed, which decried obviously the state of the Jordanian press, connected the restrictions on the freedom of the press to restrictions on political organizing. There are two very consequential events recently that I would like us to hone in on. One is the protest and anger around the death of seven COVID patients in a local hospital in the city of assault. And the other is the teachers union protest uh, last year. Can you talk more about those two events and how they relate to the question of political freedoms in Jordan now? I think we can talk about the first one, which is the more recent one, which your listeners might or might not be aware, but there was a hospital in assault, I believe, I'm recalling correctly, in which the power went out for a variety of reasons. And there were seven inpatients who were suffering from COVID and were on oxygen. The oxygen supply stopped when the power went out and they subsequently died. There was a great amount of uproar over this. And it was quite embarrassing, not just for the hospital, but for the Ministry of Health in Jordan and for the cabinet. And it potentially could have been a spark that would have really raised questions about the efficacy of the public health sector in Jordan, how they've been dealing with COVID, but more broadly also some really gross distortions in the availability of public health in the capital versus outside of the capital. But the regime or various elements within were very quick to make it near impossible to actually mobilize and call for proper accountability beyond the steps that the regime itself implemented with regards to that, including various resignations that had happened. You talk about the teachers union strike last year. One of the most powerful and symbolic mobilizations, and specifically they included public sector mobilizations, right, which is really important to recognize. This wasn't a union of private employees, that this was actually a union of of public employees. And teachers constitute some of the largest segment of public sector employees. The government engaged in all sorts of tactics to not just demonize and criminalize leaders, participants, and supporters of the strike, but also mobilized in various attempts to discipline, to surveil, to monitor, to harass, to intimidate. And this ended up not just simply being a mobilization about better pay. This was actually a mobilization that went to the heart of the functioning of the public sector and how it viewed its relationship, not just to public sector employees, but to the public more generally, because one of the things the teachers union did an excellent job, I think, was to frame their demands as better enabling them to deliver on the type of education the Jordanian public was deserving of, and how the denying of their demands was in fact undermining the quality of education students were receiving in Jordan. Zooming out, Mira, in both cases, political organizing in Jordan is not easy. I mean, there was a whole bunch of fanfare made between 2011 and 2014 about various quote-unquote reforms that were happening in Jordan that were supposed to make the formation of political parties easier, that were supposed to allow for public gatherings easier, that were supposed to allow for protests more smoothly. 
But what we've seen is that anyone and everyone that has worked to try and organize in a collective fashion, either in the formation of official groups or the public airing of grievances in an official capacity, has been confronted every step of the way by an obstinate regime, either through bureaucratic mazes, through public demonization and questioning of their loyalty to the country and to the stability of the country, or through actual monitoring, surveillance and prosecution including, by the way, prosecution, not just in civilian courts, but in military slash security courts. So when we want to talk about political organizing, we have to combine two things, the really humbling and impressive desire of many people in Jordan to be actively engaged in understanding their circumstances and in discussing their circumstances in articulating demands, visions, and hopes for a better future through political organizing. That really impressive and humbling drive by a number of people over the last decade, for sure, in concentrated fashion, but historically in Jordan, as confronted by a regime, whether in the royal court, the military and security establishment, or the civilian government, that has done everything possible to stand in their way and raise the cost of political organizing. Earlier this year, the Jordanian government decided to dissolve the teachers' union and jail a number of its board members. Obviously, with the coronavirus and the economy struggling, the public is increasingly dismayed. Uh, you have written about Jordan's political economy and movements of protest, especially post-Arab revolutions of 2011. With that in mind, where do you see things heading? Well, I always make a joke that I, I'm a historian by training and I leave the predictions to political scientists who generally don't do a good job at predictions, despite the fact that some of the political scientists that work on Jordan, I think, have been really astute and have really inspired my own thinking and working. I frankly don't know where things are headed. What I do know is that politics do not move in a linear fashion meaning increased repression does not necessarily lead to increased social mobilization. Continued deterioration of the standard of living, if we look at rising rate of unemployment, rising rate of poverty, and decreasing purchasing power of the average person in Jordan, the continued deterioration along these lines does not necessarily lead to a social revolution. Otherwise, in the world around us, we would see the most revolutions in the poorest of countries or in the most repressive of countries. And that's not how we see things. I would conclude with three points. The first is that the population in Jordan, whether they are Jordanian, including Jordanians of Palestinian origin, whether they are Palestinian, meaning not Jordanians, but Palestinian refugees, whether they are other refugee communities or of other nationalities, have legitimate and real grievances that, if one listens to, have long been articulated and continue to be articulated. And I think we need to stop being satisfied with how stable Jordan is and what an ally of the United States, the United Kingdom, and Saudi Arabia it is, and actually pay attention to these voices and grievances. Second, the regime is always going to act like any other authoritarian regime in ways to secure its political incumbency and maintain power. Regimes do not give up power. Regimes do not give freedoms willingly. 
I think we should be very clear about that. Therefore, in trying to maintain its rule, in trying to maintain its incumbency, it has engaged and will continue to engage in a range of practices, including demonization, vilification, harassment, surveillance, monitoring, and prosecution of real and perceived threats, of real critics and perceived critics. That's the second point. And the final point is that I am humbled by the activism that I've seen in Jordan, and not by the political entrepreneurs that are trying to capitalize on legitimate grievances to advance either their favorite member of the royal family or their favorite member of major political families or of major business moguls. But I am humbled by the activists that have, at great risk and threat and loss for themselves, risked their body and their reputation to identify genuine injustices in Jordan and to call for their being properly addressed, whether in the teachers' union, whether on the question of freedom of speech, or on the question of any number of other issues. Dr. Ziad Aburish is the director of the MA program in human rights and the arts at Bard College. His research focuses on popular mobilizations and state formation in Jordan and Lebanon. Dr. Aburish is also co-editor of Jadalia Izin. He spoke with Mira Nabulsi from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. The group made serious demands for five institutions to be established on Alcatraz. And why don't we have them yet? A Center for Native American Studies, an American Indian Spiritual Center, and an Indian Center of Ecology that would do scientific research on reversing pollution of water and air. A great Indian training school that would run a restaurant, provide job training, market indigenous arts, and teach the, quote, noble and tragic events of Indian history, including the Trail of Tears and the Massacre of Wounded Knee. And a memorial, a reminder that the island had been established as a prison initially to incarcerate and execute California Indian resistors to U.S. assault on their nations. Advancing the conversation to abolish racism for over 70 years. 94.1 KPFA.
Maybe you've been listening for years, even decades, and you appreciate how important KPFA is in your life. If you're a forward-thinking donor who wants future generations to benefit from KPFA's and unhindered creativity, then join KPFA's Legacy Circle and include KPFA in your will or living trust. For details, visit our website at kpfa.org. Thank you. You're listening to 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFB 89.3 FM in Berkeley, KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno, and K24-8BR 97.5 FM in Santa Cruz, and online all the time at kpfa.org. Coming up next, it's going down. But first, the news. The news. 